guys, we're in the middle of a pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. COVID has affected us all, and with all the negativity surrounding it, it's often hard to find the positive. One of the blessings it has given us is the opportunity to build an avenue for creating change, starting right here in our community. Discussing topics that affect us most, such as racism in healthcare, maintaining a positive mindset, creating change, the importance of advocacy, and the many lessons we have all learned from COVID. If you or your organization are interested in speaking engagements, send a message to quadcast99 at gmail.com reach out on facebook at quadcast or online at drquadjo.ca welcome to solving healthcare i'm quadro caramante i'm an icu and palliative care physician here in ottawa and the founder of resource optimization network we are on a mission to transform healthcare in canada I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Well, Guest Nation, listen, we have Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist, joining us to talk about therapeutic options. What are interventions that we could do with the early diagnosis of COVID to allow people to not only survive, but also reduce your risk of being hospitalized. And specifically, we talk about his monoclonal antibody program, which is changing the boogie. I didn't think I would be as excited as I was doing this interview, but you'll hear it in my voice. You'll hear it in Zane's voice. It truly is boogie changing what they're doing. You know, like, when you, when you look at the overall future uh, outlook of COVID and you look at the fact that COVID's here to stay, we need these therapeutic options for those that are high risk. You know, the vaccines are very effective, but there's certain groups in the population that are still at risk. And so this is uh, really exciting stuff. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Before jumping into it, I got to tell you about Solving Wellness. You know what I'm saying? Our online virtual platform that offers... Uh, online workouts, yoga sessions, um, cooking classes, nutrition tips, mindful meditation, stress management advice, all these things to reduce burnout within healthcare. $99 a year, $9.99 per month. First month is free. Jump on the train. All right, y'all. So without further ado, Dr. Zane Chagla. Well, Guest Nation, we have a returning guest. You know, Dr. Zane Chagla, doesn't, a man of no, like, no introduction is needed. <laughs> How you doing, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Good, good. You know, it's, it's amazing. We didn't, we didn't pump this up uh, at all, but we got to finally meet each other, which was yeah. great. It was uh, good to just catch up and, and be real for yeah. a couple hours there. So uh, I yeah. really appreciated uh, the encounter, my friend. No, I loved it. Again, a lot of the, a lot of our, uh, let's social media has done such a poor thing for us that we, or even, you know, being so remote from each other is that some, 
done such a disservice to us. I know. Um, and and I think you know, d- there's just something so relieving about just sitting down and having a beer with someone and and just talking and and being able to see them and hear them and have the body language and all those other things that we used to do, right? So oh, it was it was so good. It was. I mean, it's yeah. It's it's the. It's just like the intangibles, like it's as you said, like the body language is smiling. It's just it's a different interaction. And I had a great time. We had Sumon in the mix, too. Um, and so that was that was great. Um, that was fun. And this is where we came up with this idea, actually, for this yeah, podcast, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. So therapeutics, yeah. monoclonal antibodies like we've been hearing about this throughout the pandemic. And they've kind of I don't know if it's fair to say, but they've lost momentum in terms of visibility and, 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 yep. and, uh, notoriety. So like, maybe let's just start off with like, what do we need to know? Like how do monoclonal antibodies work? What's the, uh, data to support their impact? Why don't we start there? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I agree with you. This is, this is something that's been weird. That's kind of, you know, there's been this medical revolution in COVID and vaccines have been incredible. Don't get me wrong of the pandemic that's come out. Vaccines are number one to 10 on the list of, of, you know, impact interventions globally, but the advances in medical treatments for COVID-19, particularly early COVID-19 are really incredible. And, you know, I tell people, you know, if we had these drugs and these potential options back in March and April of 2020, we would be rolling them out by the dozens. You know, there'd be health systems set up for it, but it just seems to be almost a whimper these days that, uh, you know, that uh, we have these options, but they're not being used. So monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are... um, uh, antibodies, so so the proteins that are normally used in our blood to fight COVID-19 by sticking to the virus, by preventing it from getting into the cells. Um, uh, a number of companies have kind of looked at which are the highest and most robust binding antibodies and basically synthesized them up in the lab. Uh, so there's a number of products on the market. Um, uh, they've been available for a while, although the, the last two iterations have just come to the Canadian market relatively recently. Um, and, and, you know, this isn't a novel concept in infectious diseases, right? You know, you get, you know, we have monoclonal antibodies to RSV that we give little kids um, uh, who are premature that are going into RSV season to prevent them from getting RSV. Um, we, uh, you know, use antibody, passive antibody therapy for things like prevention of um, varicella zoster in uh, or, or chickenpox in, in, uh, in pregnant women, uh, rabies and people that are bit by rabid animals. So, that, you know, they're, they're well-proven therapies um, to really just, you know, augment the immune response and, and clear out the virus as fast as possible. So um, uh, there, there are two on the Canadian market, one called Regencov, which is a combination of two different antibodies. Uh, and and another one called citrovimab, which is a, a, a monoclonal antibody that was actually interestingly derived from a patient with SARS-CoV-1, mm. um, but showed uh, a, a really good binding to SARS-CoV-2. And so the company decided to roll it out. And so these have been trialed for a lot of different things. They initially got put into hospitals to see whether or not they would improve patient characteristics. Uh, they didn't do a lot, although the one big trial that finally came out, the recovery trial, which is the big one that really we base most of our inpatient therapy on, um, that did show in patients that didn't make their own antibodies yet. So they are they were patients that were you know largely unvaccinated or had not been infected with COVID nineteen in the past, or had been infected 
you know, currently, but hadn't made enough antibodies to really be visible, that their mortality dropped when they got uh, the Regeneron compound by about 6% absolute, but, you know, 20 to 30% relative reduction in death, which is in the same ballpark as steroids and tocilizumab and all this other stuff we throw Yeah, the number people. needed to treat about 16, eh? Like, yeah, like, yeah, which roughly. is pretty, pretty reasonable to save a life in that sense, uh, especially in critically ill patients. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the crux and the Achilles heel of early therapy of viral infections is that it has to be given early, right? You know, this is different than antibiotics, right? Antibiotics you can give throughout the spectrum of illness. Yeah, you give them early, people likely won't get as sick, but they're life-saving if they're given very late in the disease too. Uh, you know, we do this all the time as part of our medical care. Uh, but, you know, viral infections are very different. And it's because of the fact that the virus has its own infective phase where it's killing cells, ca causing damage, replicating in high amounts. And then often what brings people to hospital is not that piece, but the uncontrolled inflammation that comes from it. Right. And by the time people come to hospital, much of their virus may have actually cleared out of their system. Um, but that damage and that immune, you know, haywireness is, is what's leading to people coming through, right? So we know for, for infections like chickenpox, like shingles, like influenza, getting drugs, antiviral drugs into them within the first 24, 48, 72 hours, even for HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or post-exposure prophylaxis, you know, you, you have this window early to get drugs into people because it prevents that virus from replicating. Once you get too late, you know, again, it's not the virus that's causing damage. And if you stop the virus from replicating, the damage is done. The die is cast, right? You know, what's, what's going to happen is going to happen. You know, it, it still may help, but not at the levels that it would. So these two drugs were trialed in early patients. So Citrovimab, five days after symptoms. Uh, Regencov, seven days after symptoms. In high-risk individuals, and again, this was these trials were largely done in the era prior to vaccines, um, that uh, uh, they saw a marked reduction in hospitalization, seventy to eighty percent reduction of hospitalization in people that are high risk. Right? These are people over the age of fifty, people under the age of fifty with major problems like diabetes, high blood pressure, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, COPD, and lung disease that they saw a marked reduction in these people coming to hospital, you know, in, in the studies about 1% of them that got the, the drug ended up in hospital to six to 7% that, uh, that got placebo, right? So, you know, these are really impressive drugs. And, and again, they're available in Canada, they're useful in Canada. Um, and, you know, deployed in the right populations, you can actually have fairly profound effects in terms of letting people recover at home even if they haven't, you know, done vaccinated, which is still an impressive and probably the, the highest intervention to prevent people from coming to hospital. Um, but, you know, it gives us another option to say, you know, uh, we can keep people out of hospital one way or another. And, and that's what we should be focused on more and more. You, I, like, I don't uh, fully, I don't know if people will fully understand how exciting this is because the cascade happens when, like, if you land in hospital, like, there's so many poor outcomes that could happen, not only death, obviously, but even if you get through your admission, you're talking about, you know, significant morbidity, your ability to, you know, function from, uh, you know, being short of breath, being weak, all this, th all these things we're trying to prevent. We want you to prevent you from walking into our doors 
and that just has a, a paramount impact. And and it's kind of a I don't know if Zane, if it was just me, but I, I did think the 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 concept even of intervening at a outpatient level maybe didn't get as much hype. It, but to me, it's such an important uh, concept because, as I said, if you walk through our doors, you, I mean, you've been in, dealing with this just like me for the last 20 months. You've seen uh, the, the nature of what happens. And, and what I like, too, is like we need as many options as possible. Yes, there's always going to be unvaccinated. There's going to be people with high risk that even despite getting vaccinated are still at risk of getting uh, critically ill with COVID. So let's think about what our options are and, and, and really personalized uh, uh, some, some therapeutics, some treatments that could prevent them from seeing myself or, or, or yourself in hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and again, this isn't novel concepts, right? We've been giving antibodies to people since we've been making antibodies for the treatment of disease. Um, you know, it's, it's not a novel concept. It takes work. And I think that's the, that's been the biggest thing, right? It's not something where the drug falls down and and everyone's going to have access to it. You still need to get people tested. You still need, uh, um, you know, a a place to actually infuse this drug. You know, it is still a COVID patient. So you have to make sure they have precautions. They have to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, that yield is huge, right? Let's not, you know, the individual patient, you can change their trajectory by 70 to 80% with a single infusion, a two hour appointment. Mm-hmm. But from a health system standpoint, too, remember all we've been in this for from day one is we want to make sure healthcare capacity is preserved, right? And mm-hmm. here's a tool. Yes, vaccines are going to be the, the most biggest tool to, to ensure healthcare capacity. We know in Ontario, you know, the large number of people in our ICUs and the large number of deaths are amongst unvaccinated individuals, some vulnerable individuals on that. Um, but at the end of the day, who cares about how people don't end up in hospital? The fact is they don't end up in hospital. They don't end up costing our system money. They don't end up taking healthcare beds. They don't help burning out staff. They don't, uh, um, uh, you know, shut down uh, uh, oh, essential ours. services like surgeries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. At the end of the day, if they're not in hospital, they recover well at home, regardless of how they, they were, you know, helped to that, that outcome, that's going to have profound effects on us. And we live in a public healthcare system, right? We should be worried about patients ending up in hospital because everyone has to pay for it. So why would we not use some of these exciting therapies you know, build systems for people to access them uh, and uh, and help them, right? And then the other population, the other big population, you know, unvaccinated populations is what we've been targeting. But the others are, are people that, you know, you can give them 10 doses of vaccine. It's not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. If you're getting cytotoxic chemotherapy, your immune system's wipe, I can give you 10 doses of vaccine. You get COVID during that time, you're basically unvaccinated, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a transplant patient, you're basically unvaccinated. You're on uh, rituximab, which is a molecule that wipes out all your B cells, which produce antibodies. You get COVID, you're unvaccinated one way or another, right? So it gives us, again, a backup for those populations that are high risk, that, you know, got their vaccine, but we know that they still need extra protection. You know, again, having these systems in place uh, really do protect them. And those patients have, again, they're big healthcare spenders. They, yeah. They're the people that we've invested huge amounts of money into to treat their disease. Uh, mm. So why wouldn't we invest a little bit more to keep them alive a bit longer? Absolutely. And like to give people a context, like I think there was a, 
like Kai had put out, like your run of the mill ice, uh, not even ICU, your run of the mill COVID patient usually runs about twenty twenty thousand dollars per admission. So like it's it's not chump change, and um, you you just to, to absolutely be, be clear on this, like in your mind, Zane, like what's the ideal patient? Because you mentioned, uh, you know the. Uh, some immunocompromised population, but like in terms of uh, just hammering it out, like who's the, who's the ideal patient to receive this? Yeah. So, you know, we are generally looking at people who are at the highest risk of hospitalization, right? You, you know, it will help everyone in the United, in the United States has been given to a lot of people indiscriminately, regardless in Canada, because we have a limited supply, you know, we've been generally trying to target it to people where it's going to intervene in hospital uh, admissions. And so, um, we're largely targeting unvaccinated populations. And, and the reason isn't because we want to discriminate vaccinated, unvaccinated. These are antibodies against the spike protein. So you get vaccinated, you make thousands of antibodies against the spike protein to different pieces of the spike protein. Uh, and we know based on good clinical statistics, you know, your outcome, if you're vaccinated and get a breakthrough infection is going to be better. And in fact, 90 plus percent reductions in hospitalization, which are better than 70 to 80 percent. So uh, plus, you know, there's there's no issues with access or anything like that. It's in your body. It's working. That's it. Um, and so, you know, the, those individuals who are low risk, vaccinated are you know, low risk of hospitalization. We're not going to take even high risk of hospitalization vaccinated uh, outside of people that, you know, vaccines may not work in. So transplants and people are immunocompromised. It's a little bit controversial whether or not these actually do offer any more benefit. Uh, and, and some studies suggesting yes, other studies suggesting no, uh, some studies like recovery even suggesting harm. Uh, and so, you know, again, we're being very careful about fully vaccinated, relatively low risk populations. And then unvaccinated people. And again, you know, I, I don't care if you're not vaccinated. You know, we've been around, you know, whatever's happened, you've made your decision, so be it. Um, but we do know those people are like the original clinical trial participants where their you know, risk of hospitalization, if they're over 50 is 5%, over 60 getting to 10%, over 70 getting to 30%. Um, uh, and so, you know, those are the people, A, we want to get in and B, you know, people who are under 50 who have some of the risk factors for severe outcomes, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidneys, liver disease. You know, those are the people we want to get in uh, as, you know, they, they have a not high, but, you know, a, a decent chance of ending up in hospital and we can change those odds with a single dose. That's uh, it's amazing. And I think that's uh, another detail too, like uh, Zane, like single dose therapy, they only have to come in once. Actually, mm -hmm. you know, maybe to illustrate it, actually two things. One, let's stop the hate on the unvaccinated yeah. treatment amongst healthcare professionals. I hate, I, I can't stand seeing this. It's uh, you and I've talked about this. You know, there's so many people that land in hospital from lifestyle choices. You know, we want as many people vaccinated as possible. But to, to say we're going to treat you differently is straight up bullshit. Sorry. Second, maybe let's walk through because you set up this program, which we were celebrating online, which I, I, I'm so proud of you for, for really establishing this bad boy, because it's going to as we talked about, it's going to change lives. It's going to save lives. Um uh, so, yeah, walk us through the program, the clinic. Yeah. So um, patients are brought in a number of different ways. We try to recruit them. So they're given, you know, at our Hamilton has one major assessment center, 
it's an incredibly run assessment center, but that's the vast majority of people in the city. Uh, and so we pre-screen them. And again, it's great collaboration with our digital informatics team using Epic, um, where, uh, you know, right at the clinic entry, are you vaccinated and what is your age? Boom. If you're unvaccinated over 50, you get put on a list digitally. Uh, and if your test comes back positive, we get a report on that. If you're under 50, unvaccinated, you get asked the risk factor questionnaire. Again, it's done very non-judgmentally and, and we give information on why we're asking, um, uh, you know, in, in pre-informed patients that they, you know, they may be contacted about this and they, you know, they could be considering it. Uh, so we get those reports every day. We follow up on every patient that falls on those reports, give them some information, you know, uh, you know, and we have the ability, we're running it seven days a week. So, you know, most people can be booked same day or next day. If they meet the criteria, their symptoms are less than seven days and they're not ill enough to be hospitalized basically. Mm-hmm. We're also, you know, using traditional referral models. So people who, you know, we've tried to advertise family doctors in the community uh, through our assessment centers in the communities, uh, you know, so people can be referred in if they meet criteria. And then we partnered with all the health units and kind of said, hey, you know, uh, if you've identified these people, please let us know. We can help them, you know, and, and uh, you know, all of us are on the same team here. We're a regional network. Our, our healthcare beds are all a, a resource for all of us. So, you know, please you know, come in and, and uh, refer them. And again, we'll, we'll do the, the hard work to make sure they get in and, and get there. So we'll contact patients, um, usually book them same day or next day, bring them in, um, uh, consent them and just give them some information around the process. Um, they're hooked up to a, an IV um, uh, and they get a 30 minute infusion and that's it. They sit there for about an hour monitoring for allergic side effects. They're very rare, one in 10,000. Um, we have a nice TV in the, the waiting room, so they're watching CP24 the whole time. Uh, and then, uh, and then, yeah, and then they go home into isolation and I, you know, we'll give them a call as follow-up in about a week. Um, and we'll give some information, education on what to monitor for, just from general COVID, what to monitor for, as we're often the only healthcare providers that are involved with some of these folks. So, um, you know, how to, how to, you know, if you're high risk, how to check your SATs and um, if you're low risk, kind of what things to look out for, for yourself and your family. So, you know, most people have been in and out. They've, they've been really, really happy with the process. They're very, very happy that we've just been compassionate and giving care to people regardless of their vaccine status, which is exactly what we should be doing in medicine. Um, and uh, and a lot of people feel better within a, about a day or two. Actually, I for, remember. Uh, I, I forgot you mentioned this. You said like uh, symptomatically, you felt like people improved relatively quick. I don't know if there's data to support that or yeah, that's anecdotal. Yeah, no, the clinical trial showed a four day improvement in symptom resolution. So about fourteen days to ten days of people who got the therapy, and it, you know, most of them were getting them around day five to seven. So within about two or three days of getting therapy, they were better. They they tend like people with kind of the fever, myalgias, you know, uh, muscle aches lethargy fatigue those symptoms tend to be the ones that go away because those are really viremic symptoms mm-hmm. they're 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 the high viral symptoms when they do get into like cough congestion that type of thing those are more inflammatory symptoms they tend to sell a lot slower in that mm. sense but that you know people's energy feeling drained all that stuff tends to really you know profoundly get better in in 24 to 48 hours which is great because when we call them a week later they're feeling like back to normal which is exactly what we want at the end of the day and and in terms of, like you mentioned, the uh, you know risks like a one in ten thousand uh, uh, allergic reaction. Is there any other uh, 
side effects to watch out for when they leave you? Yeah, you know, we we always do ask them to monitor for the COVID, you know, you know, especially as as some of them do come a bit borderline as they're they're coming in. So so, you know, just to make sure that their COVID doesn't progress as, as you know, it might be too late for some of them. Uh, their window is kind of closed. But generally, if you look at the clinical trials, it was not much else. You know, the serious mm-hmm. adverse events were actually higher in the placebo than, than the actual drug arm in that sense. Right. So uh, across most outcomes, you know, grade three or four serious adverse events, you know, people are getting fever, headaches, myalgias, nausea, vomiting. But again, they all have acute COVID. And so uh, when you look at placebo, they're at about the same frequency as that. So really, it's just the allergic thing more than anything else. Qualcast Nation, do you guys realize how, like, we always get a little bit excited when, when it's like system level changing boogie flavor in, in your mind grapes. Like, this is what I love about this, man. Like, this, like, you're doing this in Hamilton. I don't know, before going on, off on a rant, are, are you aware of many other places doing similar things throughout the, na- throughout the nation? Or yeah, so so Alberta has started a program just a couple of days ago, uh, and so you can go to the province of Alberta website. They have information there about your criteria. Uh, they're they're enrolling people over the age of sixty five who are unvaccinated and people that have had transplants. Um, Saskatchewan has a program through Regina and Saskatoon, uh, and again, fairly similar criteria. Um, in Ontario, we're the largest site running things. There is a small program in Toronto and a small program in London for kind of ad hoc doses for high risk people. Um, uh, but yeah, yeah. Outside of that, you know, uh, there's really nothing else going on. So we've been taking patients, you know, however they come here, as long as they can come here in one car ride without getting out of isolation, we'll take them in that sense. And Zane, these are already purchased, but uh, putting you on the spot a little bit, like, is there been like a cost effective analysis or like cause on paper, I know these drugs can be quite expensive. Yeah, I mean, I think they're they're. I don't know the exact cost. I think they're somewhere between one and two thousand dollars a dose. Um, You know, I uh, we did a bit of this work, kind of modeling out how we would run a clinic. I think we we budget our clinic to be about twenty thousand a month, and that's two nurses, pharmacy, um, uh, technical support, uh, clerical support, clinical services, and uh, and janitorial support. you know, so, you know, if you take that Kai high number of $23,000, as you said, uh, you know, and a number needed to treat of about 15 to 20 to prevent hospitalization. If you've infused 20 people or 15 people, you'd be cost neutral. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you've infused 30 or 40 people, you'd be cost negative. Uh, with the paying for the drug, you'd have to get to that 30 to 40 number um, to, to be cost neutral in that sense. Again, those are just dispensable costs. Those don't, don't, those don't count for surgical closures, overtime pay, all this other stuff that's indispensable, right? So this yeah. is just literally consumables of a patient as they're in hospital for COVID. Opportunity costs, not being at work, caregiver having to be at home. Like I, I know there, there's a financial case for this. Like, I mean, and by the way, if you guys need a crew to do the paper out of this, you know, resource optimization network, that's a huckleberry. Um, yeah, but uh Listen, people, this is what I'm talking about. Changing the boogie at a system level, man. Like if you're talking people not coming through your doors, you're intervening early. You know what I'm saying? You're 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 with an intervention that not only makes you feel better, but also uh, reduces your risk of, of, of being hospitalized and getting severely ill. You know what I mean? Like this is what we're talking about, because let me tell you, it's the vaccines are extremely effective. 
but there's going to be breakthroughs for people. There's going to be people that are, well, as we talked about, immunocompromised, that are elderly, that are, you know, that don't have as, a, a, a robust of an immune response. And if we can have these tools at our disposal to, as we said, reduce that risk of, of, of coming in, the, the reduce the strain on the healthcare system, which was a number one priority in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that was it. That was the goal, right? That's what everyone wanted to do. Flatten the curve, make sure healthcare resources are saved, right? Well, then let's go. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I, I and I think, you know, and it, and it, I don't know, like, I, I just think this is something that when you, you, when you know about, when you learn about, you just want to see it amplified because you know how impactful it could be uh, for our, our primary goal of, of reducing the strain on our system. So, yeah, yeah I, I just, yeah, just commending you, my friend. Yeah. And again, this is this is the beginning of it, right? This is not, you know, early treatment. There are lots of companies that are developing early treatment options for COVID nineteen, right? So this mm-hmm. is the beginning. There is a mm-hmm. huge opportunity, and and you're you're as much of an expert in health systems transformation and that type of thing. You know, there's an opportunity here to create multidisciplinary clinics collaborating with assessment and testing. Uh, to really ensure that patients get customized therapy for their COVID-19 such that healthcare utilization is minimized and people feel better. Right. Yeah. I, I got, I got like the, a million ideas now, actually that, um, and I, I'd have to think through this a little bit harder, but if, if your PCR or if people had faith in the rapid antigen testing or whatever was on site, like at an assessment center, and they could within, I don't know what kind of time frame, if you say you could get your PCR test within an hour and they could even legit just go down the hall and get their infusion or get their oral antiviral, like, bam, you know what I mean? Like it was yeah. just like well-oiled machine, integrated system, all on the same platform, by the way, like EMR, um, efficient uh communication to all the, the care uh the care uh, uh team um hmm like there's there's this there's is a lot of possibilities there's right? a lot you know, of in possibilities the U- in the u.s there was a, a paper i think i read in the new England journal where people they had a map team basically where it was like literally pcr is coming off the facts they call they say we're going to send a team out there and give you the infusion in your home Mm-hmm. Don't worry. Like, we'll do this. You'll feel better. And like, again, like really, you know, yes, upfront cost, but what's the downstream cost savings from it? Right. I, I like your idea. In fact, I, I, there's a center I'm working with to, you know, to get their program up and active that is looking at that model. Exactly. That their assessment and testing center um, has an area where they can cordon off to actually give infusions. Yeah. Um, and so they, they, you know, they have access to some of the rapid test modalities, the, the piece, the rapid antigens and the ID now, which is kind of a rapid molecular um, that they'd be able to take, you know, people that are epidemiologic high risk, they've had an exposure to COVID, they're symptomatic, they're over the age, get them tested immediately through that pathway and then send them over to the end of the hall to get their infusion. Oh, man. And even the, the home idea, too, like I'm thinking out loud here, uh, this is off script, people, but like if you. See, because, you know, they're all often, you know, multi-generational homes, congregate mm-hmm. living uh, scenarios. Like if I'm going to a house and I could screen family members too, like, like there's potential for, I mean, you, and like whether you do the testing on site or, or what have you, but there's a, 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 there's a potential for expanding the reach and like not only from uh, therapeutics, but from uh, 
testing, from an engagement. Like you walk into that house and say like, yo, are you vaccinated? You're not vaccinated. Let me, we'll, we'll offer that. Uh, this is why it's important. Or you, you need, you have symptoms. We could do a test for you. We'll mm-hmm. come back and, 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 and give you some, uh, uh, monoclonals if appropriate or which we'll talk about too maybe one of the oral anti uh virals like like yes there's a lot of potential if we're willing to have some upfront investment and think outside the box because um you know we we this is one thing we're bad at in medicine like we got to think about future like where's this going to go eight months from now where's it going to go a year from now mm-hmm. um because, I mean, I think you and I could say confidently COVID's not going anywhere. And, uh, you know, I, I think we got to prepare for if, uh, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C. Um, but, yeah, I this is getting me really excited because it's because, uh, yeah, it's a little you get to use a little bit of creative muscle here. But I think that it, it would benefit a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the possibilities are endless, right? You just yeah. have to have the expansion, you know, and you know, you, if you look 30, 40 years ago, what oncology was, right. And I, I take this as an aside, you know, giving chemo as an outpatient in a chemo center, you know, would be unheard of, right. Mm-hmm. You would admit patients for their cancer. You give them horrible chemotherapy. Um, they would stay in hospital for their entire course. Well, that system's transformed, right? Like, you know, the, the, now the standard of care is out big outpatient cancer centers. And, you know, rarely do patients need admission unless they have complications or their bone marrow transplant, something like that. You know, it's doable, right? And, and to say that, you know, obviously cancer is a major disease in our society, that that is a huge burden, but so is COVID. It will be, you know, and, and the way we're dealing with it obviously is, is changed the way every single person has lived. So why can't we use that creativity, right? Yes, mm-hmm. it took time to develop, but like... You know, again, positioning therapy as an outpatient, reducing admissions, giving services as an outpatient isn't unheard of, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, again, you, you, there are a lot of healthcare systems that have transformed into that. Mm-hmm. No, 100%. I think outside the box, be ahead of the curve, my friend. A um, couple of things, because I know you got a conference uh, that you got to hit up. So um, one thing I wanted to ask was, the other like oral um, antivirals. I keep wanting to say antiretrovirals, but yeah. uh, <laughs> one is kind of. Oh, is that right? Well, what, it's all it's it's an yeah. HIV. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me tell me about uh, what we know about the it's Merck and what's the other one Pfizer. Uh, Pfizer. Yeah. 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 So, what do we know so far? So Merck uh, has a drug that's an RNA polymerase inhibitor, and uh, so you know in in in, uh, in simple terms, you know uh, is a, a molecule that when it goes into the cell mimics what happens as a, a nucleotide or a piece of our genome, basically. It doesn't integrate into the host genome, but it integrates into the virus genome. And basically, as it integrates, it stops the virus from replicating and, and ends it. And, you know, we actually have a lot of drugs that we use that normally that actually have this mechanism of activity. You know, again, the drugs we use for shingles, for example, Valtrex and uh, acyclovir, essentially do the same thing to that 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 virus they they kind of uh hijack themselves into replication they don't integrate in the human genome they integrate in the viral genome so impressive 50 percent reduction in hospitalization amongst their clinical trials we're still waiting for the full publication and uh, by the time the interim review was done there was about 600 extra people that were enrolled so kind of want to see those results to see if they mimic that um 50 percent reduction but you know again Oral, cheap, available, five days of therapy. 
needs to start within five days of symptom onset. And again, that's that Achilles heel. You need to get drugs into people early into their disease. Otherwise they may not work as well as you would like. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Pfizer drug is a protease inhibitor. And this is a class of drugs that we actually use for HIV. In fact, it's, it's uh, two drugs combined. And protease inhibitors is the virus kind of replicates. It makes big proteins that get chopped up into little proteins that make the virus. And so all this does is, break down the machinery that chops up the virus. So they're stuck as these big chains of proteins that can't be cut up, folded together and make a new virus. Uh, and essentially virus replication stops. Um, it's, uh, you know, these rep, these are used for HIV as one of the major drugs. They're not used as much because they had, they had some side effects for HIV in long-term use. Um, uh, and it's actually boosted with an HIV drug called ritonavir, which is also a protease inhibitor, but also uh, using you know, a drug pharmacokinetic. So just kind of boost the level of the other drug in someone's system too. So it kind of has a two in one action. Great drugs within three days of uh, symptom onset have used 89% reduction in hospitalization. If used within five days, about 70 to 80% reduction in hospitalization. So, you know, again, huge potentials here, right? These are now even that model of like having to hook someone up to an IV, you bring them in, da, 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 da. It changes. You could do this from home. You know, Mm -hmm. you could deliver this to people. You could give these to high-risk individuals. You could have this on spec for them. You could stockpile these drugs, right? But there is still a need for health systems transformation to use these. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, again, getting patients tested, making sure patients know that they, you know, and I think one of the things that's lost in all of this is, you know, testing is not just a public health behavior anymore, right? It's not getting tested so that you can isolate and protect other people and start contact tracing. There's an additional benefit here. You can change your personal risk of having complications of COVID-19 by getting tested early. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, you know, that needs to be translated across all populations, vaccinated, unvaccinated. If you get tested early, you may have access to customized therapies in the next few months Uh, And the earlier you get tested, the better your outcomes may be to get those therapies. Uh, So, so, you know, there's that, you know, getting people tested both from a behavioral and access standpoint, there's the getting people to analyze those tests and say, these are people that need therapeutic options. There's the ability to deliver those therapeutic options and then monitor patients afterwards. Right. And and again, that's not going to happen like that. That's not going to happen when these drugs get approved. That work needs to happen now with some of the stuff that we've been doing, you mm-hmm. know, and again, building these systems for health transformation to, you know, deal with outpatient and early treatment of COVID-19. Um, so, you know, people, I think, are waiting for the oral drugs and hesitant around the monoclonals um, because they, you know, they're an intravenous and they require inpatient or, or kind of clinic utilization. But you're not going to get to be able to use those outpatient, you know, uh, oral drugs very well if you haven't set up the process in place to be able to get people tested, get people contacted, counsel them, and give them drug within five days. They're going to be as useless as uh, as anything else if you're if you're not building those systems now. It, not only, yeah, so totally agree the the need to be able to have those systems now and and plan like proactively, but it's also another important message I think is like a lot of people, especially if they're not vaccinated, they fear getting tested, mm-hmm. right? Because of the stigma and, and all the, the, the shit that gets associated with that. But if you know, at the end of the day, you're, you'd be, you'd be able to be uh, treated with something that could reduce your risk. 
that's a, that changes the landscape and you know for a lot of people like i i think this that's another kind of um i don't know if it's communication messaging or what have you to 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 really think about because um once again this is what we're trying to do to prevent you from seeing us in hospital um, yeah absolutely it's a huge re-education right like yeah. A patient that tests positive on their way to the ICU is a failure to me, right? Like mm-hmm. it's a failure that we could have intervened early because that person didn't go to the ICU day one of their symptoms. They went day seven, day eight, day 10 of their symptoms to the ICU. But if they could have gotten tested early, and again, people have hesitations, right? They don't want to be identified by public health. They don't want to be put into isolation. They don't want to be stigmatized to say they weren't vaccinated and, and now they're they're in trouble. But at the same time, we need to change that messaging, right? Getting tested is not a public health behavior. Yes, it, it helps with our public health campaign, but now the primary in- incentive to get tested, especially in, in patients that are at higher risk, is to be identified for therapeutic options. And, and again, you know, as long as we can intervene, keep people out of hospital, let them recover at home, you know, we've done a service to society and, and keeping everyone safe and keeping everything open in that sense. I got, I, you, you, got, you get my like uh, creative juices going here, actually. Like, I think what you just said, actually, like uh, gave me a little bit of uh, jump in my step. It is a failure if of uh, seeing a COVID patient land in ICU. Like we, we need to actually like register that. We need to really think about like, like really let it sink in when we have, you know, obviously vaccines, but other therapeutics where we could be intervening early to prevent it from happening. And if we have that kind of mindset moving forward, you know, this is maybe this is a thing that will help mobilize. That's the message. This is help uh, mobilize some of these creative solutions. And um, I'm just, I'm, I'm also just thinking out loud once again, off script, like, we really, it'd be nice to really have that because I don't know how easy it's going to be to change the the narrative of like the, the, the what's the word I'm looking for? The shaming from getting yeah. a positive test and all that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's easy to, to address, but I, it got me thinking more about like testing away from test center. Like, if, uh, you know, I know it's not perfect, but if there was a way to really be able to, for people to do it at home effectively, um, Maybe that's a workaround, but I don't know. I mean, that's just yeah, a, hey, look, a speaking, look, like, speaking out like loud. you know, we have experience, right? Like, you know, as ID physicians, we see HIV all the time. Similar paradigm in testing, right? Yes, we, you know, we have now we're in an era we have huge preventative options for HIV outside of condoms. Like, yeah, condoms work, but they're not perfect in that sense. And and some people, again, behavioral issues come in mind. But we have pre-exposure prophylaxis for HIV, meaning that if we give patients HIV medications who are high risk of getting HIV infection before they have their, their high-risk encounter, that it markedly reduced the risk. It almost makes zero. Like in, in someone that's diligent in pre-exposure prophylaxis to HIV, there have been case reports of people breaking through, but it is incredibly effective in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so again, we identify patients, we make sure they get tested, um, we identify patients that are high risk and we, we offer them HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. We still don't destigmatize 
getting tested for HIV, even if you you weren't able to access these therapies, uh, and we we treat patients appropriately. But again, we've we've changed the way it's tested. There's hassle free clinics. There's anonymous testing clinics. There's you know rapid tests on site for HIV and some sexual health clinics. Uh, and so yeah, I mean, there's been lots of work in that domain to change the behaviors around testing to make it a uh, positive health promoting behavior as compared to a negative promoting behavior where people are shamed. Lots of those lessons could be taken over to COVID, especially as we're trying to identify patients. Yeah, you may have the traditional testing route, but can you create other testing routes where people are given an anonymous number and name uh, and that's it, right? You know, Mm -hmm. right now, maybe it's a little bit dicey, but down the road, you know, it's not unreasonable to start thinking about that so that, yeah, you know, you might get the people out there that, yeah, you know, you might not identify them for public health. So be it. But if you didn't create those processes, you probably wouldn't identify them anyways, right? Mm -hmm. At least we can intervene on those people in that sense. Amazing. Amazing. Last question while I have you. It's a big one, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, Big picture, like uh, taking a bird's eye view of our situation in COVID. So um, uh, it's Remembrance Day 2021. Um, You know, uh, in terms of where we're in general going over the next, whether you choose next few months we we got boosters coming we got child uh five to 11 year olds being offered vaccines you know there's some you know today on the or yesterday on the news uh science table talking about uh you know like maybe this is a time that we should be a little bit more careful where where do you where are we going in your mind uh dr chagla (laughs) it's a big question (laughs) you know we're we're in a, a bit of a transition period, right? And and again, you know, the the just just put it in perspective, right? November, I think November 9th or November 10th, 2020 was that Pfizer first press release, right? Yeah. Where it was literally, we have a vaccine that may you know significantly reduce infections and significantly reduce people's chance of getting sick. It's a year later. 85% of the Ontario population has now been fully vaccinated against COVID-19. So we have to be very thankful of where we are right now that, you know, the vast majority of people, you know, that 85% out there are not going to suffer the complications of COVID-19. They may have a breakthrough case. You know, they probably have 70, 80% protection now from the vaccine, which is still pretty damn good. Uh, and they're 95, 90 to 95% protected against serious disease. And, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Of the people in Ontario, 50 or younger, amongst the millions and millions of people vaccinated in that age group, there have been five people that have ended up in ICU and six or seven deaths. And I can tell you of those those people, I you know, a good number probably have immune issues that that vaccine Absolutely. didn't work. Right. Yeah. Like it's not just a, a healthy person off the street that died. Um so, you know, I, I, the proof is in the pudding that vaccinated people are going to be at much lower risk of complications of COVID-19 going into the year. And even in Israel, where they've done this booster campaign and you look at the two versus three dose data, the rate of severe disease in pretty much all age groups under the age of 50 is pretty much zero in two versus three doses. So, you know, again, there is that, you know, as, as people say, this uncoupling or decoupling of cases, you know, there are cases that are not going to count towards healthcare utilization as they did before. Mm-hmm. That's good. 
And I think a lot of people have lost that perspective, you know, especially with booster campaigns. People think the vaccine is useless. It's not useless. Yes, there may be a little bit of less efficacy towards mild disease to getting a cold in the community, but that efficacy towards ending up in hospital outside of the older age groups, which you are boosting and is probably a good idea, um, is pretty well preserved for most populations. And so, you know, number one, I think we're probably going to see, unfortunately, a winter where the virus is going to find itself into unvaccinated populations. And, and, you know, unfortunately, if we don't roll out therapeutic options, those unvaccinated populations are going to end up, some of them having healthcare utilization and putting pressure on the system. Mm-hmm. Is it going to be enough to bankrupt the system as we've done before? Maybe not. Uh, you know, I think Ontario has a lot of resources. We're well ahead of the curve in terms of vaccines as compared to places like Alberta and Saskatchewan over the summer that dealt with their waves a bit, you know, at, at lower rates of vaccine. Um, is it enough to make people uncomfortable? Yeah, for sure. You know, there's a lot of unvaccinated people out there. Um, you know, we're seeing now a lot of transmission in the community, especially, you know, places like Sudbury, Elmer, Ontario, you know, places that traditionally didn't get hit uh, that are now getting COVID and Delta transmitting into their communities. So, you know, I think, again, this, this li- you know, this process of living with COVID-19, uh, you know, having healthcare utilization as low as possible, but still recognizing that we'll have to keep some available for these patients, um, you know, again, recognizing early treatment options is going to be important. Um, but I think, you know, again, we're in a very different point in this pandemic, right? You know, again, the risk profile has changed for a good chunk of that 85% of the population that's fully vaccinated, where even the risk of breakthrough infection is going to be different. And so, you know, as, as people are talking about ways to, to reduce transmission significantly, you know, it's going to be hard to, to use measures that are global to reduce the risk of, of healthcare utilization Amen. amongst a small group, right? Amen. It's this going to is, be hard, right? This is, yeah, this is something that is... It's a level of nuance that you're not hearing about either. I tried to bust that out on the news a little bit. Like at this at this point, we we should be adding a little bit more precision, asking ourselves, "Hey, where are these communities that are having the higher level of transmission, and what can we do to intervene?" This is where I think like public health wants to put up their muscles. A group of people that offer therapeutics, that offer vaccines, all these kind of tools at their disposal to like be ahead of the curve again. This is the time now. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And again, we have these tools, right? You know, if the goal is, even if we see these surges to make sure that they stay in the community, this is why we're talking. We need to use these tools now. They may not be perfect. We still have to get people tested and make sure that their health units are equipped to do testing. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, again, there may be a little bit of room for some public health measures. They may get you two or 5% reductions in transmission, but what's what's going to drive transmission is going to be and what's going to drive healthcare utilization is this, is this group you know it's fine you know we just need to create you know opportunities for these people to get tested early to get treated early um, to mitigate spread in those populations as much as possible with contact tracing to be non-judgmental about testing because again this us versus them mentality of people vaccinated versus unvaccinated is pushing unvaccinated people to not get tested until they end up in ICU mm-hmm. uh, and so you know again you know these making more harsher and and more more tough language towards these individuals will have downstream effects there right and mm-hmm. and again the last thing we need is people not being honest with contact tracing not being you know getting tested too late before we could intervene 
Um, and uh, and again, that might be our pressure more than anything else going into the, the winter season. Yo, man, now that I think about it, we should be linking you up with like cats in Scarberia, uh, Peel. I'm telling you, Zane, I haven't had an episode where I've had so many ideas busting out. I know, this is, I'm sure this is not an original idea, but like, no, no, these yeah, we were actually we're we're working with the, the assessment center in Mississauga, so they're going to be helping us with the, with uh, providing therapy to patients. So we've actually given a few people in Mississauga some treatment already. So, so again, we're anyone who wants to come here, and we're going to you know help and offer this as a provincial resource to the, at least this region in that sense. So, um, yeah. You know, this is this is it. Like, that was the reason we started this, right? We wanted Although, to just be a resource. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna. And this is the other thing because you've done a couple of new spots on it, eh? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. Did, did you do any? What? Not, like, uh, did CBC National pick that up, or has it been mostly regional? Regional stuff, I think. There's a couple of national news sources, but but yeah, not not a ton. Okay, we'll make a push, man. We'll put, make yeah. a push. We'll uh, this episode will come out on Tuesday, and then we'll just give it to all our 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 uh our media sources because like i i I mean people you know on the show i don't say this much but like this is a needle mover man like when you sit down and think about it it isn't it truly is a needle mover i'm not sure if that's a expression totally but like (laughs) like when you have that option and you have that tools like we need to just increase awareness and get that and get that uh get that ball rolling like i was thinking even in ottawa I don't know who you've connected much with in, in Ottawa. I, I, I'm not, I haven't heard much of that, but mind you, COVID's a bit different baby here. Like we're really like, uh, we're yeah, we're really sheltered. A lot of people working from home, um, less uh, essential workers and so forth. And hot, like one of the highest vaccination rates yeah. globally, actually. Listen, I know you're on the clock, buddy, man. Oh, I knew we had, when you say we got to do this, <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course we got to do it. But this is, this one, this one got me going, my friend. This is yeah. a great. Like I knew you're doing something special, but I didn't realize it was this special when wow. you say the number. So Zane, thanks again for, for uh, doing your part to contribute and uh, squeezing us in when you with such a busy schedule. But thanks so much. <laughs> no worries. All the best. Take care. Right, Take care. Bam. Tell me that wasn't delicious, people. Zane was just throwing down knowledge left, right, and center. And frankly, he was inspiring. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, at Quadcast. Leave that five-star rating. Tell me after this show you didn't want to leave a five-star rating. Leave it on this show specifically, people, because this is a boogie changer, man. This is going to change, potentially change the landscape of, of pandemics and and moving forward, I, I'm so jazzed up about this one. And guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. We love you. We'll connect again real soon. Peace.